You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Dr. Ted Smith received his Ph.D. from Emory University in 2004, his MDiv from Princeton Theological Seminary in 1995, his M.A. from Oxford University in 1992, and his B.A. from Duke University in 1990. At Candler Theological Seminary at Emory University in Atlanta, Dr. Smith teaches especially in the areas of preaching and ethics. He also serves as director of Theological Education Between the Times, a project that gathers diverse groups of people to think together about the meanings and purposes of theological education. With Dr. Joanne Solis Walker, he is co-principal investigator of Candler's Innovative Pathways for Tomorrow initiatives. Smith is the author of three books, The End of Theological Education, published by Erdman's in 2023, Weird John Brown, published by Stanford in 2015, and The New Measures, published by Cambridge in 2007. Together, these books try to think theologically about core American Protestant institutions, practices, values, and rhetoric in a time when they are unraveling. Beyond Candler, Smith teaches in the Ethics and Practical Theology courses of study in Emory's Ph.D. program in religion and serves as a senior fellow with the University of Virginia's Project on Religion and Its Publics and is affiliated with Emory Law School's Center for the Study of Law and Religion. Ordained to ministry in the Presbyterian Church USA, Smith served as pastor to two small membership churches in rural New York prior to his doctoral studies. Today, we want to talk mostly about Dr. Smith's most recent book, The End of Theological Education, as well as doing some theological reflection. Welcome, Dr. Ted Smith, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thanks so much, David. I'm really pleased to be here. Well, I first uh, came across your work on the OnScript podcast, and I heard that interview, and I would refer people to that interview as well. But as we were talking a bit in the introduction, uh, it, it seems to me like what you're helping, I guess, the world of theological education to see is the silver lining in the, in the current times of uh, a lot of change that we're going through. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, silver lining, I think, is one way to think about it. Um, I might uh, cast it in uh, as, I, I don't think of, though, as much looking on the bright side of a difficult situation. I think of it as an eschatological hope um, that often takes a parabolic shape. It might work through what is hidden, um, and it depends entirely on that wily persistence of God. Uh, for the redemption of the world. So, yeah, I, I'm counting on theological education continuing in some form, not because we're going to get the right model uh, eventually, but because God longs to be known. And as long as God longs to be known, there will be theological education of some kind. Well, at the beginning of your book, uh, you uh, set out the story of uh, Lyman Beecher, and it serves as kind of a parable for the book. So I'm wondering if you could rehearse that for us. Yeah, uh, thanks. I 
I love that Lyman Beecher story uh, and the story of Lane Theological Seminary that he uh, is one of the early presidents of. And I do want to cast it as a parable. Um, uh, you know, the parables of Jesus are about the reign of God, and so they necessarily have an eschatological cast. And I want to read the history of Lyman Beecher and Lane Seminary parabolically. And by that, I, I just mean that I want to read them in relation to God's great work of redemption. So that means there's going to be a sign of judgment there. It's not just a simple affirmation of folding them in, but there's also a kind of seeing in the long course of history as it unfolds ways in which they're woven into the larger work of redemption. I, you know, I focus on Lane and on Beecher, and I think they can be revelatory for this moment for, for a couple of reasons. First is that like, Beecher lived through one of the last great transitions in social imaginaries in the U.S. He grew up in a Connecticut where the church was funded by taxes, legally established. It, you know, its Sabbath was mandated by law. Um, and, then, and then all of that went away in his early adulthood. And I think he thought the world was going to end. Um, but the world didn't end. Uh, if anything, uh, the new in kind of network of churches as voluntary associations was even stronger than the older network of established churches, which was already coming undone. And Beecher himself learned how to navigate that new space. So yeah, there is a, the book, I wanted to open the book with a strong sense that we've been in a moment like this before. Well, it was a hopeful, it was a hopeful story. Uh, in the introduction to the book, you comment, those of us who care about theological education face an analogous double challenge now. We need to make a leap to new institutional forms. We are in the midst of social shifts that run as deep as disestablishment did in the early national period. Historians, sociologists, and social theorists have described these shifts in many different ways over the last half century. I wonder if you could expand on that a bit. Yeah, thanks. I, I, the book uh, lays out three kind of epochs in American religion and society each defined by a different social imaginary. Now, anytime, you know, an author makes a move like this, uh, the, the kind of periodization, it, it's going to be wrong. Um, there are going to be exceptions. There are going to be details that aren't captured by this. There's going to be reasons to uh, organize things in another way. Um, I, I, but I think it's very hard. I hear, though, I, I've learned a lot from the philosopher the Theodore Adorno and you know, Adorno says you can't think without models. Um, we have to have these models. But you, a good model is not a model that is, uh, into, you know, perfectly accurate. A good model is a model that fails in revelatory ways. And so that's <laughs> that's that's what I'm hoping for. That, that, uh, that, that, that'd be a good way of uh, summarizing my experience in ministry. Yeah, <laughs> failing in <laughs> revelatory ways. I think that I think that's the title of your memoir, David. Like, <laughs> and uh, it could be uh, it could be a title for uh, Paul's memoir. Uh, it could be a title for Augustine's. You, you know, you could. Uh, it covers a lot of church history. So I'm trying to lay out these three epochs uh, in the book, each defined by a different social imaginary. And there, I'm, I'm borrowing that term from uh, Charles Taylor. There's a I've learned a lot from Taylor, and that, I think, permeates the book, that learning. But uh, a first one of the standing orders that I was describing with the, the church-established 
uh, mm -hmm. with the political order. And then a second one of the voluntary associations, which has really kind of run from that early national period until what I'll call the long 60s uh, of the 20th century. And now a third kind of epoch that is coming as the voluntary associations unravel. And that's one that I think is anchored by a valuing of authentic individuals. So I see those three kind of uh, eras as defining American religion and society. And it's notable that there's been a different form uh, in that last shift. There was a different form of the church moving from a parish or a kind of village church that was funded by taxes to a congregation that's a voluntary society. There was a difference too in the emergence of the denomination. Ministry changes. Ministry becomes less an office in the standing order and more of a profession. And then there's a change in theological education where theological education moves from being part of a standard undergraduate curriculum that anybody who's gonna take up office in the standing order would need. And it becomes instead more specialized post-baccalaureate instruction for people who are going to lead these religious or religious-ish uh, voluntary associations. I think if we're in another kind of change of epochs now, we should be anticipating changes in all of those categories, in the thinking of what a congregation is, thinking what ministry is, thinking what larger thing connects denominations or connects congregations after denominations, and then also thinking about a new form for uh, theological education. So, uh, the, but, you know, to, to kind of lay out that sort of history and to talk about the rise of individuals, this is something that just as you, as you said in that opening quote, many, many social theorists have pointed this out, um, usually in a critical, uh, with usually with critique. And I think the critique is valid. Um, we are losing something meaningful as these voluntary associations come unraveled. But I think what's maybe distinctive about the perspective of this book is, um, you know, that is just the deep ambivalence about these changes and the insistence that there's going to be some way for a faithful response for those of us who are caught up in them. Well, I went to uh, I went to seminary at uh, Bright Divinity School at TCU, mm. yeah, in 1983 to 1987. At the time, they were extraordinarily committed to um, the way that you did theological education. Was you moved? There was seminary housing, and we were all together in this community. And the idea was, uh, you know, part of the experience was just being in community with others who were going through the same you know, through the same process and, and being in a community of theological education. And so now, um, you know, there's much more uh, distance theological education and new models and um, distance learning. So uh, I think in your book, you, you the way you kind of try to get at all of this is uh, chapter one is about the forces of individuation, chapter two about how this is unraveling things. Chapter three is a sermon that then interrupts the story to announce the end of theological education, even in the middle of things with the vision of judgment and grace that are two faces of the same divine love. And then from the blessed groaning rubble of the present, I thought that was interesting. I try to name practices of renunciation in chapter four that open us up to God's faithfulness and some affordances we might grasp as we try to respond in chapter five. So it's a pretty ambitious way of, uh, I don't know, trying to work through it. 
historically and also uh, sort of right where we're in the middle of it to suggest ways, possible ways forward. Yeah, I'm, I really appreciate your lifting up the structure of the book. Um, I, I, I thought a lot about the structure and the structure is in many ways the core of the argument. Um, that chapter outline is, I mean it to reflect a theology of history and that theology of history is essential to the broader vision of the book. Um, And in particular, what I'm wanting to resist here are narratives of both progress and decline. And, you know, through the 19th century in the U.S., narratives of progress reigned. Um, I think they crashed against World War I in Europe and uh, they crashed against the Depression uh, and and Jim Crow in the US uh, and then the Niebuhrs and uh, neo-Orthodox theologians made sense of that end of a, uh, a narrative of progress. And then, but, but lately it's less narratives of progress that you hear except you know, sometimes in Silicon Valley and it's much more narratives of despair uh, and narratives of decline. Uh, they, they permeate church discourse and theological discourse uh, right now. I'm wanting to resist both of those. I think they're, uh, they make a, a fundamental mistake in the way that they relate the reign of God to empirical history. Um, they each kind of anchor it, whether it's in the past or whether, which is what you get with a narrative of decline, or whether it's in the future, which is what you get with a narrative of progress. And I want to uh, offer a different eschatological vision in which the reign of God isn't a point on the timeline. It's rather the you know the power that creates the timeline. It's the love that bisects the timeline, that enters every moment, even the present moment now, and transforms everything. I I want to name it as I want to think this book. Uh, you know, it's part of a series, theological education between the times, and the the logic of that series is that all of Christian life unfolds between the times, between the time of. Uh, of the resurrection of Jesus and the wedding feast of the lamb. So to kind of do practical reasoning in that space, to tell, to think historically with that kind of sense of uh, what's happened of the larger flow of history or what history means. So that's, that's embedded, I think, in this structure. So you get a historical narrative of unraveling Mm -hmm. of a replacement of voluntary associations by individual, authentic individuals. Not going to tell that as a story of progress. It's not the dawning of the age of Aquarius. I'm not going <laughs> to tell it as a story of decline. Um, it's not like, oh boy, we had it all together in the 50s and now we're bowling alone and we're doomed. So I'm going to resist both of those. And that's why the word of God, uh, this kind of what I hope to be like an inbreaking of uh, grace and uh, judgment, as you say, that comes in the middle. It comes in in the present. Uh, and then practical reasoning happens on the other side of it. And to me, practical reasoning, uh, it begins with renunciation. Um, it begins with, we might be clearer about what we can't do right now or what we need to not do. And then uh, with those open hands, those hands made open by renunciation, we can begin to take hold of some of the affordances illumined by grace. So that's that's the logic of the book. Well, what I'd like to do now is to make a couple of statements that I think are oversimplified, and uh, but but just allow them to be kind of a springboard for some conversation. 
So my yeah, first, so long as they fail in interesting ways, right? <laughs> right. These, these these are two. Yes, these two statements are going to fail in interesting ways. All right. Okay. In liberal settings for theological education, there is no real concern about the afterlife. There is no real concern about heaven or hell. Whereas in conservative theological education, there is no real concern about this life. It's all about heaven and hell. So, uh, what do you think about that oversimplification? Hmm. Yeah, I think um, I, I think uh, what you've got, especially in more liberal theological education, is um, is a materialization of heaven and hell. So, what is hell? Hell is uh, a militarized police force uh, patrolling. Uh, neighborhoods and subjecting citizens to systemic racialized violence. That's hell. Um, and, but, but it's not as much an afterlife. It's a very present, very material reality. And what heaven, you know, heaven might not even be the language, but, um, but the, the ideal that we're working towards is a, is a negation of that. And it's a, a different way of relating to each other. So I think, um, but there, but you might hear language of heaven or hell used, but I think you're right that on the whole, there is some, uh, there's a reluctance to think fully eschatologically about those categories. And in the, in conservative theological education, I, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know exactly where you're drawing the bounds of conservative here, but I would, um, I, I hear a lot of concern about this life uh, these days from more conservative quarters. And I should say, if you go to the you know a class in systematic theology at at, a, at most liberal seminaries uh, or mainline seminaries, you're going to hear about uh, you know concern about heaven or hell. Is it the animating driving force of the curriculum? Maybe not, um, but the questions are going to arise. So too, I think, and I've seen a real kindling of interest in evangelical and uh, circles around questions of racial reconciliation, uh, questions of poverty, uh, you know, coming out of the seventies with uh, Ron Sider and Jim Wallace, but really right on through. So I think each side is, is a little more complex than that. Even if the, uh, the general characterization kind of opens up a conversation we need to have. Yeah. I just, uh, in, my seminary experience, just sort of the community was very focused on um, the plight of the oppressed in you know various places in the world and here in the United States, and that the, 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 the real focus, the energy, a lot of the energy at the seminary was how can we make the Christian or Christianity relevant to somebody who is experiencing suffering right now. And that was where a lot of the, um, a lot of the energy was. And I don't remember in seminary, like you, you had courses, uh, on systematic theology, but there wasn't really anxiety. There wasn't this sort of sense of palpable anxiety that if we don't get out and evangelize people, they're going to go to a hell, some kind of hell of eternal separation. Um, and, um, that might have been. Uh, reflecting on eschat, esch, eschatology in systematic theology classes was something that you did, but it just wasn't a part of kind of the, 
if I can use the word, kind of the vibe of the of the yeah. of, of the seminary uh, of the seminary experience. Uh, but then when I got out into uh, the churches, when I would meet people, <clears throat> people that I would run into in in the church, they would be concerned about the destiny of so and so, their friend or their relative who had died. You know, what happened to them? What confidence can we have about you know how things are going to turn out in the afterlife? Yeah, I think I think that's. I, I had a similar experience, um, and I went to a mainline Protestant seminary. You know, maybe a decade after you did, I, um, I I think there's a way in which that picture of the kind of the vibe or the ethos, the the driving energies of the place. I think I think there's a lot of accuracy in that. Still, I would say um, that that one of the things that has happened in seminaries in the last. 30 years or so since you and I graduated is that they have become much more internally diverse. And that is true uh, in terms of race and ethnicity, for sure. Uh, My own seminary is now um, uh, like right on the cusp of being majority, having a majority of the students from historically minoritized populations. Um, So that's true racially and ethnically, but it's also true denominationally. Um, you've got all, it used to be a school like Candler had mostly Methodist students. Um, now we still have a, and a school like Bright had mostly disciples. Um, now they've always all been ecumenical, especially these larger and university affiliated schools. Um, but the, the denominational pluralism at all of our schools now is more intense. And I think one of the things this means is that students bring a, a really rich variety of backgrounds and questions. So for instance, I know that there are students at, at Candler right now for whom those questions of uh, salvation are urgent questions. Um, they're questions that they're thinking about for themselves, that they're thinking that's one of the ways they see the world. Um, so uh, I think the students especially are going to be more pluriform uh, than mm-hmm. any of our summaries. And then I think you're exactly right. Once you get out into the world, um, uh, especially if you're in any kind of pastoral ministry, it, is, it just is a question, uh, a set of questions that people are going to come to you with, with great urgency, maybe around a funeral, but also just maybe in, in everyday life. Okay. Here's my uh, next oversimplified question, which I hope fails in revelatory ways. <laughs> okay. In conservative uh, settings for theological education, you could get into trouble for openly advocating for universal restoration in Christ, as well as in progressive settings for theological education, you could get into trouble for advocating universal reconciliation in Christ. And I guess I'm thinking about this as a mostly as a faculty member. Uh, so what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I, I think, again, this is a there's a, there is some truth in this. Um, I think it's it's a it is a, a helpful model that um, you know we can name exceptions to, but it doesn't. But that it's still the case that the larger picture can be revelatory in some important ways. Here's one thing I'd say again. I know the progressive settings much better uh, than conservative settings because I, I know the progressive ones from the inside. Um, 
I'd be wary of language of getting into trouble for advocating universal reconciliation in Christ, that, that language that you use. I, I think uh, at many schools, there's going to be a kind of a, a deep, well, th- this is a tension right now. There is historically a deep commitment to a, a, a little L classical liberalism that values um, freedom of expression uh, freedom of inquiry and uh, plurality of views, uh, and that that just takes that as normal. And so, someone who's talking about the universal universal reconciliation in Christ is going to be under that tent, right? You might have faculty members who disagree with them sharply, but um, at these schools, there's not going to be, for instance, uh, you know, a statement of uh, belief that you have to sign, uh, neither formally nor informally. So, uh, I think. So I, I don't think you could get into the kind of trouble that uh, uh, you know, the kind of trouble you'd get into would be more limited. It would be colleagues disagree with you. They might say, "Hey, there's a kind of imperialism that you're that you've smuggled into your Christology," um, but that, that's a colleague a collegial disagreement. I think it's less like less likely that you would be dismissed, and that's because of the kind of residue of that classical liberalism um, in conservative settings. I think that that. Uh, I mean, there again, you've got a wide range. I think that there are many that would share that commitment to a kind of big tent uh, openness of discussion, right? And especially if you can proceed under the banner of someone like Bart, um, well, then maybe you could you could have a little cover for yourself or for a position like this. Um, and I think in in others, though, it's you know there you would need to there, there would be much more rigid enforcement of doctrine. Um, one of the things I was going to say was that uh, sort of my impression, uh, part of the impression that I've gotten in doing some of the interviews that I've done is I've I've run across some scholars who are in in um, seminary settings that have uh, evangelical backgrounds, and they have had to be careful about expressing. Uh, universal restoration, a universal restoration theology, because it runs into some sort of previous theological commitments that are part of the the, the church that is behind the theological institution that they're in. Yeah. And then on the other hand, I had uh, one of my professors, one of my former professors, is um, thinks that my Christian universalism is a bit narrow because like you said, it's sort of got this imperialism in the Christology that everybody has to come through Christ. And so yeah. it means that the Christian revelation then is the superior revelation to all other uh, all other spiritual revelations, and that Christ then is, e- even though all finally are reconciled, that they are only reconciled through Christ, which he, he thought was not really a helpful way to interact with other world religions. Right. I mean, I think right there, you've uh, that's the pushback that you would get in uh, from uh, some faculty members, at least at a more progressive seminary to a call for uh, universal reconciliation in Christ. I think that's you have named it. Um, <laughs> All right. But I also again, I want to I, I, certainly at Candler, I would say um, where we really were, we're really committed to a kind of big tent uh 
a big theological tent because we want to serve the whole church. We want to serve the whole church. And that means we have to make room for a variety of theologies. So I, w- I would want both the Christian universalist and the one who sees uh, Christian universalism as a kind of imperialism and the one who's very wary of Christian universalism. I'd want all of those folks uh, to be at the table here. And, and frankly, I think they are. Um, and then we need to practice forms of uh, hospitality and generosity and nonviolence in the ways that we listen to one another and agree and disagree with each other. So if somebody came to Candler uh, Seminary and they're uh, leaning towards uh, theology of universal reconciliation, that wouldn't that wouldn't be a problem for them as a as a student in a Candler program. No, I, not at all. I mean, I, in fact, I think that's probably um, where you, where at least the plurality of our students would be. Okay. Well, yeah. so that's good to know for anybody that's uh, out there that's thinking about theological education. And if you're thinking you might not have a place to go, well, Candler might be a place to uh, place for you to look into. All right. What I'd like to do now is, um, sort of switch gears and do some theological reflection, which was one of the most fun things that I that I remembered about seminary was mm. that just being able to sit down and talk about theology. When when you're a minister, people a lot of people don't like to do theological reflection with ministers. You know, it's just sort of too in, intimidating in some way. They're afraid to disagree with you sometimes or um, or maybe they're afraid they'll say something wrong. Um, but a lot of times, uh, so it was almost like seminary was intensely, you know, theological and, um, and then ministry was very, almost intensely practical. You're just, you feel like you're solving lots of practical problems or, uh, pastoral care kinds of problems. And so some of the, the big theological questions can kind of fade into the, fade into the background. Yeah. Right. Can, can I, can I push back just a little bit on that? Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and it's really, uh, a plea for, seeing the theological dimensions to pastoral ministry and seeing that every one of these encounters um, is already theological, already has theological significance. I really worry about it uh, when people solve them or, you know, hit all these dilemmas and think about them only pragmatically or Mm -hmm. when a kind of business school mentality or, you know, some other form of ethics, whatever takes over. So, so for instance, I think like a worship planning committee, the question is, these are deeply, something as simple as the order of worship. Um, In what, in what order do these things happen? This this is a profoundly theological question. And, um, and people are going to bring, uh, from the congregation, different expectations, different desires, right? But uh, you can, but, and if, if what we're going to do is have a conversation about a kind of systematic theology of liturgy, well, they're not going to want to do that, right? And they're going to, that's going to be intimidating. It's going to have exactly the dynamics that you describe. But if you, if you say to them, if you, if you surface for folks, the theological and uh, issues that are already present and the practical questions that they are already asking, I've, I found that they would repeatedly go with me uh, on those. They were willing to to take them up. So it's to see, I mean, even things like uh, the carpet color, you know, all these uh, seemingly uh, trivial 
disputes and issues that can arise in congregational ministry. To me, they all have a theological dimension. And seeing that is really important, I think, for the theological formation of the congregation. But it's also important for pastors to avoid burnout, because otherwise you're like, hey, I'm trained as a theologian, and all I get to decide about is like uh, where the anthem should be positioned in the service or if we should have an anthem. Um, but you've got to see those as theological questions that are that are that are worth your worth your leadership, worth your mind, worth your time. And if they're not, then you need then you can dismiss them with some confidence and be like, that that's just not something we need to worry about. Yeah, the, the way I ended up um, working this out in in my own church experience, one of the main ways was I had a Sunday school class that I taught, but it was, you know, heavily theological. That was what we were doing in there was just really having fun with theology and learning all the different ways that people put things together and having good theological, you know, reflection. And so that was that was fun for me. And then I did try to tell people in the congregation that I am, you know, I am open to theological uh, discourse. I will I will bring to you the best that I know, um, but that doesn't mean that I am, uh, you know, I have a perfect grasp of everything, and that I'm not interested in you know hearing what you have to say and having uh, uh, and having conversation back and forth. And that proved actually to be really fruitful, because it was somebody in the church who took me up on that and said, I um, I really think that universal reconciliation is is the way we should go. And I, at that point, I wasn't quite convinced about it, but at this person's urging, um, I researched it further and we had a long series of, you know, theological reflection and conversation about it. And it was, it was part of that whole process that then helped me continue my own theological journey. So what I discovered is that uh, one's theological journey can, can still take some surprising twists and turns as you yeah. as you go as you go through um, the the experience of ministry, I think that yeah, I think that's exactly right. And being open to that can make ministry more life giving. And I I st- and I still want to insist that it can happen not only in a classroom space or a sermon space or a sermon talkback space where we're speaking kind of in the language of systematic theology, right? In a more abstracted theological language. I absolutely think that there's a place for that in the larger life of the church. But I think a lot of times the way these issues come up are in really practical questions. Like, for instance, when when I was a pastor in rural upstate New York, you know, the, uh, the, the congregation had a conviction that they wanted to do s- something for the youth you what know, mm-hmm. whatever that meant, the youth of the wider town. Um, and they, you know, mm-hmm. it was, it was like a lot of rural places, um, not a lot of opportunities, a lot of drugs, um, just intense problems. Uh, and they were especially intense for, for young people. So, but the question is, so what, so what is doing something for the youth? Um, does it mean, um, just opening up a, kind of a youth center that then could attract state funding because it was really basic, it was almost entirely secular, right? Or does it mean um, preaching to them uh, Christ as a source of their salvation and reconciliation with God? Um, what, did, what does it mean to do something for the youth? So th- they already cared about that practical question, right? And then they could understand the terms in which we were asking it. And your your compassion for a kind of universal reconciliation is latent within that, or whether uh, 
whatever the content of salvation is, if, if it has this mostly material dimension or if we need to look beyond that. All of those questions surface in the practical question of what do we do for the youth? So to see those as present and um, to lead the community in a conversation about that practical question informed by these uh, wider theological visions and to let the questions surface in the course of that. Um, I think that's uh, I think that's what the, the best pastoral leaders that I know, they do that. And part of where seminary training is so helpful is it, it, it helps to think about these things more abstractly so that you mm-hmm. can recognize them in the concrete and, and work with them with precision. But um, they're mostly going to arise in the concrete. And you just have to see see that and let it be there instead of thinking about it entirely in a kind of this world pragmatism. Yeah, I like your I like your pushback on that. I'm in, uh, I think I'm doing a really good job of failing in revelatory ways with my, uh, <laughs> in this, in this interview. But well, that was, yeah. I mean, Me that's one of the thing, well, that's one of the things that I like about, um, podcasting and just, uh, conversation is that it's revelatory for me too, that I, I don't just, yeah. I don't do these interviews, uh, uh, just for everybody else. I do them for me as well. And I like, I like to have uh, uh, discussions with uh, people that have uh, a great deal of theological uh, training. And so it's helpful for me and, and I hope it's helpful for others too. Okay. So you ready to, to just do some theological reflection here? Sure. Okay. So I've got 10 questions and we'll just uh, uh, do some theological reflection. Okay. First question, is salvation by grace alone? Uh, yes. And, um, the content of salvation involves our response. I mean, that is the stuff of salvation, but I'm, you know, I'm deeply reformed in my instincts and, uh, I'm going to insist always that God makes the first and decisive move, uh, in the work of reconciliation. Yes. So we are, uh, reconciliation is an act of God, but then we still need to be reconciled. So there is, there is a response. There yeah. Is, I, yeah. And I think so. the, I, I think of the response in many ways as the content of reconciliation. It's what a reconciled life is, right? Even if it's uh, not only being declared reconciled, but then living that reconciled life. Um, but the declaration is, is God's alone. Uh, to make, and it's what makes everything else possible. Well, that that goes. In, I would expect you to say that in your Presbyterian, in your Presbyterian background, and so, so, I guess when you said Reformed theology, it, it seems it does seem to me. I, I know that people that do uh, uh, what I think of as Ar- Arminian theology think of themselves as having some claim in the Reformation as well, but it seems to me that. If you if you look at the five solas, sort of the five big declarations of the Protestant Reformation, that that sola gratia, that um, is 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 one of the main ones, and um, I think a real turning point in my ministry was when I really fully embraced that salvation was by grace alone. Yeah, yeah. And that didn't happen for me until I was about fifty, um, mm-hmm. and. And I don't think I really realized it because what I was saying was that 
I was saying that salvation um, is that salvation is is by grace, and then I started saying that salvation is by grace alone. And the more that I started saying that, the more that I really wondered, well, how does that really reverberate now through the rest of my uh, theology? And I was the disciples of of Christ, Christian Church Disciples of Christ, was a um, a breakaway from the Presbyterian Church in the eighteen right. hundreds, and so. It was kind of funny for for me then to come back around and say, you know, that salvation by grace alone thing. I think I want to, I think I want to go back. And I want to revisit that, yeah. Because if it's if salvation isn't by grace alone, it reverberates in all kinds of negative ways back through the rest of my theology in ways that I found I can no longer tolerate. Yeah. Um, so in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, we were free to form our own our own theologies. Um, but it was just interesting for me to sort of come back around to a reformed instinct that, um, uh, was rejected, um, by the, uh, I guess you could say the forebears of the people that started the Christian church, what became the Christian church. It's a very complicated story. It's just interesting how old themes can resurface and come back around again. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, we, we could do a whole nother podcast on restorationists. My, my, <laughs> but my, my own background, I grew up in a, a Presbyterian church, um, that was affiliated with, uh, both the North and the South, uh, before, oh. before reconciliation it had to, but it was, but it was also the product of a Cumberland Presbyterian church, um, that had, uh, merged with one of this dually affiliated. So, uh, so there's a little restoration in my background too, I think. Um, and that just comes from growing up in Southwest Missouri. That's a, that's, it's a kind of prime ground for that whole movement. But I, I think, um, you know, there was a resistance, uh, in, in people like Stone and Campbell, there was a resistance to, uh, a rigid, what they saw as a deterministic account of election. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And part of that was the shift from standing orders to voluntary associations. If you're going to have a voluntary association, that means the church is not something that exists eternally. The church is something that we form together with like minded people of our own free will. And so that 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 sense of free will that then is linked to, you know, Tocqueville sees it. It's linked to the emerging democratic ethos in the United States, all Mm -hmm. of that is emerging together in the 19th century. Um, So there's a way in which Stone and Campbell were well adapted to that uh, voluntary association model. And then I think the other thing that you can't dismiss there is that there's a regionalism. This is the, the frontier at the time, talking back to the East Coast, and there is a class dimension that is powerful. Right. They they don't want those fancy Princeton trained Presbyterian preachers in the out in Kentucky. Right. They, mm-hmm. they, they don't feel like us. They don't talk like us. We don't like them. They talk down to us and we don't want to pay what they think they should be paid um, so that you can't miss that class and populist dimension, all of which makes it very relevant for this moment, too, mm-hmm. I think. But I hear you on the theological question. Um, I think just reclaiming some sense of grace alone, it is absolutely transformative. And 
uh, it does radiate through a whole theology. If you hear me hedge on that in any way, it's to avoid, you know, what Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace, that sense that uh, it's all grace alone. So the nothing to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. that's, uh, that's where I'll, I want to resist yeah, that. Yeah. Sometimes people will say, oh, so I got a critique that says, oh, so you don't think you have to have faith. And I said, well, no, but I think that that grace is actually uh, foundational to faith. That yeah. it's it's not something that we do by our it's not something that we do by ourselves, but it is something that we will eventually do. And um, so that uh, yeah, I understand that. I, I started. I felt once I once I went to grace alone. I I really started. I started thinking, oh, this is what some of those reformers must have felt like when they when they had the aha moment. Oh, it's grace alone. Okay, so let's that, that leads us to the next question. Then, does grace go to all? Of course. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we we see that in, I mean, I mean, in countless ways. Uh, in the Bible, we see it in the Noahide Covenant. We see it in just the blessing. Creation is a kind of grace, right? So the blessing of the created order. Um, we see it in the uh, in the kind of expanding of the mission that you see throughout uh, the Gospels and Acts, and then that's performed in the rest of the New Testament. And to say uh, God is Lord of all is going to mean to say that grace is going to be extended to all. Um, I, I asked I ask yeah. a PC uh, PC USA Presbyterian Church USA minister one time if he could say that uh, grace grace goes to all, and he said well, he can he couldn't formally say it. And so I don't I, you know I don't know how much that rebounds to other places, but he, he he at least he felt like there was some he could affirm robustly that salvation is by grace alone. But then whether that grace went to absolutely everybody, he felt like he had to put the brakes on a little bit. Yeah, I think um, there might be, I I would probably, I don't uh, know exactly what this person was saying, but I would probably disagree there uh, at least as a first point with what is meant by grace. If what uh, that person means by grace is that there's going to be like that that is going to be exactly identical with the complete accomplishment of something like salvation. Well, then I could imagine a little hesitancy like the one you describe. Mm-hmm. But, but if, what, if what you mean by, I mean, the question you asked me was, does grace go to all? I mean, mm-hmm. I think, uh, I, I think you'd, you'd have, I mean, I would have to say yes to that, right? And, and that's with a really expansive account of what grace means. This is just, it's like saying is God, uh, Lord of all creation. And if, okay. And, and is God a benevolent in that role? Well, yeah. Uh, so, so I okay. think there's a, there's a, in a way there's a Christological error. Yeah. I, I think you have to say grace goes to all. Okay. Would it, okay. So if Sal, Sal, the way I sort of think about it, thought about it, well, if salvation is by grace alone, and then grace goes, and then grace goes to all. Then ultimately, this saving grace will finally sweep up uh, everyone, if uh, not not in this age, but in the ages to come. That was the yeah. Um, 
And I think here's where uh, I might uh, want to insist on what, what, what you might frame as a lack of courage or an inconsistency, but what for me is a kind of necessary modesty in making declarations about, you know, with confidence about uh, exactly uh, what happened, what's going to happen or what has happened, what is. And so here um, I, I, I do, uh, I, I see throughout the biblical witness and I am convinced of uh, this wily, persistent providence of God, this wily, persistent, redeeming grace of God that just doesn't quit, right? And that even when it meets sin, um, finds ways sometimes even to use sin uh, to continue that great work of redemption. So I think here of, um, you know, the story of Joseph and his brothers. Uh, Joseph is, you know, the covenant is going, God is going to keep this covenant, with the children of Abraham. But then Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. It looks like the covenant is in jeopardy. But then Joseph <laughs> rises to serve Pharaoh. Uh, you know, I mean, you know the story, right? And then can feed the people, keep them alive. So God uses even, and, and then Joseph announces that vision to his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God turned that. So I think that kind of persistent, um, that persistent working of God for the redemption of the world, for the keeping of the covenant. I put great faith in that. Um, and so I, I, I'm going to be more hesitant though, because I want to hold out for the freedom of God. I want to hold out for the transcendence of God. I'm going to be let, I'm going to be more hesitant about predicting the content of all the endings, right? That I know, that I know what this means and that I can kind of, uh, but what I feel very confident about is announcing that God has made a decision for the world, for all of creation, for the cosmos in Jesus Christ has made a decision for reconciliation. And then the thing is like, it's where do you put your trust? I I'm happy to trust God, the God we know in Jesus. I'm happy to trust God with the outcome of history. I'm happy to trust God with all questions of salvation, um, my own, my children's, the world's, the neighbor that I meet. Um, and I, I think that trusting God rather than uh, knowing the answer or thinking that I know the answer, that to me is a firmer ground. And so uh, this is as a pastor, I, you know, when people would say, well, you know, at a funeral or in some other context, do you think so-and-so is saved? And I, I would always insist, even with like the most devout elder of the church, you know, you could say, well, we see uh, all these signs of God's work in her life, something like that. But I, I would say, you know, in the end for all of us, that question is in God's hands. But the question is, can you imagine better hands? <laughs> right? mm-hmm. I'd, I'd much rather that be in God's hands than in the powers of my own theological reasoning. Um, yep. So it's a disposition of trust is going to is my answer to all of these uh, ultimate questions. Yeah, I think that this is to me this is a really interesting debate. I think this to me this is the most kind of interesting conversation that there is. The one that sort of the one that I have I'm as, as a convinced universalist who sort of sees it as a 
part of God's ultimate plan to be all in all. We'll, we'll kind of get to this through some of the other questions. But then through somebody who's taking it, what seems to me like you're taking is a more Bardian approach, which has a very strong uh, move uh, towards uh, the power of God to save all, but also leave some room for reserve there and and some mystery and finally is content to leave the ultimate outcome in God's hands. Yeah, and to be clear, the reserve is not about um, the, the, any reservation that I would have or hesitation is not about the goodness of God or the love of God towards creation. The uh, If there is a hesitation there, it is uh, about my own capacity to know and speak definitively about these things. I think even if we do speak in those ways, we still would need to do so, you know, in a way that's entirely bracketed in the trust of God. Like it's, that's the only way in which uh, that kind of thing, that kind of move is going to make sense. All right. Well, let's go on to some of these, uh, some other questions. Is God a loving parent to all? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, does God sincerely desire the salvation of all? Uh, <laughs> yes, this is interesting. This is like a, it's like a catechism or something, but, uh, yeah, yeah, of course God does. And I think we, I think, uh, I mean, that would be for reform, the, for reform, yeah. you know, for sort of in this, in some of the harder line, uh, reform theology, the answer to that question would be no. That right. Does not. That's right. That's right. Um, I, do, I, I, that's not. That's not my version of what election would mean. Um, and there, I think I am, uh, you're, you're right to kind of hear the Bardian inflections, or at least my understanding of Bart, right. uh, that, that all are elect, in, uh, but in a derivative way, in a derivative way. It's really Jesus who is the one who is elect. And then as we participate in Christ, um, then we share in that election. And okay, that's, here's you know, a, that's just Paul. If we, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or we, you know, and it's, it's our baptismal, it's, it, it's, uh, it's our whole baptismal theology. All right. Next question. Has God in Christ covered the sin of all? I think I, I'm here. I, I'm going to, my first language for the atonement is uh, more the, uh, that of uh, Christus Victor. So I would say that in Christ, God has defeated sin and death. And I think that, I think that language is, um, is biblically rooted, but it also, to me, uh, makes more sense of the ways that sin operates in the world. It's not that we don't participate in sin, but it is to say that sin is not these kind of private stains that individuals accumulate. Sin is a power that is loose in the world, and um, the redemption of the world is going to involve, in some sense, the the defeat of sin or the absorption of sin into love. And um, so, that, and that's what I think it, the the crucifixion and resurrection are. It is um, uh, it is God's reconciliation of the world to God's self and bearing the cost of that reconciliation, because it is a costly reconciliation, right? Um, and bearing that cost in God's own body. There's something um, that I find uh, 
really powerful about the Adam and Eve story and they, you know, they eat and then they realize that they're naked and they're trying to cover themselves up and they can't really do it. And, but then, and then there are consequences, but God, you know, God gives them a covering. And then in uh, the story of the prodigal son, when the prodigal son comes back, the, the father comes out and gives him a covering, you know, covers him um, in the robe and puts a ring on his finger, puts sandals on his feet, you know, just that covers him in this, in this unexpected uh, grace and mercy when he was feeling, you know, all of this shame and unworthiness. So I think that's, and uh, that, that image comes to me a little bit in uh, the fifth chapter of Romans, where it seems like in, in Paul's theology, there's, it's, it's in Adam, somehow it seems like humanity has been covered in sin and death. And then, and then Christ comes and now humanity is covered in righteousness and life, you know, and where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So the, the covering, uh, I do love I love the Christus Victor um, uh, idea, and when somebody asks me what the gospel is, I'll often say, "Well, it's the announcement of the good news that there's been a victory, that the powers of sin and death over humanity have been defeated in Christ." And yeah. so that's uh, when I articulate it. That's how I often that's how I often will say it. Yeah, and um, I mean, there's no doubt that covering language is biblical and it also has a kind of it has a distinguished theological pedigree through the centuries um i would for myself i I will always lean first to that language of deliverance Um, it's not that our sin is covered it is that in christ we are delivered delivered from sin and death the cosmos are delivered from the powers of sin and death okay the next question is god sovereign over all of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that would be easy for a Reformed theologian. Well, yeah, I mean, and I, I understand the, I understand some of the hesitations about sovereignty. I think, um, I, I think those often arise, and and some of the hard assertions of sovereignty too. I think the whole question here is what what sovereignty means, right? Um, what the content of that sovereignty is. So that's the point point where I would press back. I'd begin with a yes. And then I'd say, but of course, um, this does not mean, does not mean that Jesus is just some kind of super Caesar, right? Just like Mm -hmm. exerting power in the way that Caesar did, except more justly and more perfect and more perfectly in the, in the sense of more powerful. I mean that that to me is a deep misunderstanding. So that and and that that misunderstanding right there has done too much to form the Christian imagination. So I think what we've got to do is to say, yeah, God is sovereign of of all and you know the shape of sovereignty is the cross. Well, what does that mean? Um or the 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 way that sovereignty works in the world is like the widow's might okay, well, now now you've got a real, so there's a transfiguration of sovereignty uh, that we see in the gospels. There's a, and there's a transfiguration of, it's, it's not just the gospels. It's, it's the whole of uh, scripture. So I want to say, yes, sovereign over sovereign. uh, I I don't know if I'd even use language overall. God is sovereign. um, And then uh, in Christ decisively and throughout the, throughout the witness of, scriptures and then through through the witness of the church through the centuries we see a different understanding of what it means to be sovereign 
Okay, uh, next question. Does God know humanity's ultimate destiny from the beginning of creation? Yeah, this is the kind of um, a kind of anthropomorphism that I, I, I think is really characteristic of, um, especially, of especially early modern uh, theology, where we kind of imagine God is just like us. And then, oh, does God know the future in a way that we don't or something like that? I'm going to be... I, I think there's there's a kind of idolatry in that, in that it's imagining God as too much like us. Um, so I'm going to push back a little bit on a on a question like that, or on the the imaginary that has framed that. Um, you know, part of one question about it that seems to me problematic is that it imagines that God is at some point in time, right? That God is, uh, but for God, we want to say the beginning of creation and the consummation of creation are a single moment, right? All of eternity uh, is in that moment. So that's going to be a better a better way to frame it, I, I think, uh, than imagining God at some point on a timeline and asking if God knows the other points with perfect knowledge. Yeah. So the so the idea there is that, in other words, that God is not surprised by the. Oh, God is not surprised by the ultimate outcome of creation. I think that uh, what we want to, to me, what Orthodox Christianity confesses is that the, the ultimate outcome of all creation is already uh, decisively revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, it's already clear, uh, that decision of God for creation. Okay. Um, will God finally be all in all? God is already all in all right now. I, I, I mean, we want to, there is that sense in which, um, you know, uh, we're not yet at, the, we are in a time between the times, um, between the resurrection of Jesus and the wedding feast of the lamb. Um, we don't have the kind of in history, we don't have the consummation of, uh, the, the work of reconciliation. But I do want to say there's a, we have to insist on a deep way in which it is already real. It is already accomplished uh, in Jesus. Well, one of the things that I came to think of is that, is that the process of uh, sanctification, you might say, or, or spiritual growth is that I'm, I'm not becoming what I'm not, I'm becoming what I am. Yeah, that, I think that's beautiful. Yes. And that humanity isn't becoming what it isn't. It's becoming what it is. Yes. Yes. So when I think about it that way, it's a really beautiful way to look at myself and to look at humanity as a whole and to not to, to see that even though in the, in the midst of the in-between times, it looks like this really wounded thing and I can look like this really wounded thing. But ultimately, that's not what I, I'm in, I'm in process that I'm, that I, I and all of humanity and all of creation is much more glorious than I can imagine. And if, if I start thinking about myself that way and thinking about other people that way, it just changes the way that I imagine God being present in their lives and in my life. And it, it makes the world shine in wonderful kinds of ways. Yeah, I think that, you know, that's that's what uh, Thomas Merton is trying to communicate in his recording of his glorious vision on the street corner in Louisville, 
where he see he has this moment where he sees the world uh, in the light of redemption and the light of God's grace. And he says, you know, the people around me are shining like the sun, um, shining like the sun. And I think there is a deep way in which that is already the case. The, the one uh, little wrinkle I'd insist on in your story is that uh, we, we can't do it without sin, right? Uh, without keeping sin in the story. So it's not that um, I'm becoming the person I already am, and that person um, is just wholly innocent and perfectly good from the start. I think what we have to, when we say that we're uh, becoming, that redemption involves becoming who we already are, it, that who we already are is a redeemed sinner, right? Um, it's uh, not that uh, there isn't a wound there, but it's that the wound is healed by the grace of God, and that that's our real identity, and that that identity is already real. That, that I think, is really important. And so we're living into the reality of God's redemption. I, I love the way you're thinking about that. Well, I like, uh, well, thank you. I like uh, Romans 11.32. I started seeing that in a different uh, way, that God has imprisoned us all in disobedience, that he might be merciful to us all. And I, I sort of came to embrace that as the sort of kind of uh, ultimate con uh, conclusion kind of statement that Paul is building to uh, through all of Romans. And so um, I'm God is making me into somebody who can be perfected, but also who has a sense of deep humility. And so I think there's something beautiful about that as well. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, next question. Is it possible to make a perfectly free decision to ultimately reject union with God? <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, the, my, my first answer to this is no. Uh, and I think that's because there's um, a, a misconception about what freedom is. And if freedom means... A kind of libertarian account of freedom. Uh, freedom is freedom to do whatever I want, you know, and that I'm mm -hmm. ultimately free. Uh, and in that sense, um, that that's that's where you could get to a question like this. But I want to say that um, you know, with the great prophet Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. You're going to be serving somebody. And there's a way in which, if we say no to God. It is not from some site of existential freedom. It's because we're still in the thrall of sin and death. We're still under the power of sin and death. So saying no to God is actually one of the least free things that we can do as humans, right? It, that's what it is to be in the, in the, the grip still of uh, sin and death. It's not a free action when we do that. So I want that's, that's my first response to your question. The response that's more sympathetic to the question is that the work of reconciliation, it, it, it culminates in love. And, um, and love is at the center of it. And I think part of the nature of love is that it does not compel a response. Um, love offers itself in, in W.H. Vanstone's beautiful image. There's a risk of love, a risk of love. And that that risk is part of what makes love love. It's part of what makes it grace. It's part of what makes it beautiful. Um, and if that risk has to be, if that risk is real, 
then it, there is a risk that it won't be reciprocated, at least not immediately. And I think that's the risk, the risk of love that God takes in Jesus, that Jesus embodies. And, um, and I think God is, shows this incredible patience and persistence in loving, even as God waits for our free response of love. I know that was, I was impressed when I was reading Origen that he, um, he was very concerned that, that free will be maintained and that, that God would not save people by um, uh, negating their free will, but by patiently um, waiting and working with them uh, in love in, until their the freedom until true freedom finally appeared to them as to as to what it was but he was not god was not going you know in the business of waterboarding people into heaven or right. torturing people into heaven yeah or um you know in in uh john dunn's great poem in, among the holy sonnets that batter my heart three-personed god there's almost that sense of God as pillaging a castle, right, or something to go in and take the soul out. I think the um, wait, the wrong way to read Dunn's poem there is, is as you say, the kind of waterboarding God. Um, the right way, I think, is to see that there is, that the act of deliverance is costly, right? And just to break the power of sin and death um, is a kind of there is a real breaking that happens there and the breaking of that hold on our lives, um, even if then it doesn't ultimately determine our response. Okay, uh, last question. If God is understood as a being of light in whom there is no darkness at all, does it diminish that pure light if some people will not or might not attain to union with God? Yeah, uh, I don't think there's anything that uh, humans can do or or that that uh that can diminish the purity or the light or the love of god so that would be my that would be my starting point in thinking about this question right um and then i think you kind of you can kind of and this is why um it's because of that that confidence in the goodness of god that confidence in the persistence uh, and and wiliness of God, that is why I'm I'm glad to trust God with all these questions of salvation. So, um, I think this is again a, a kind of pushing back on the question um, and an in, uh, insistence on that light of God being fundamentally trustworthy, and so we can uh, put our lives in those hands. I think this is a, this might be, I have an, I have an undergraduate degree in that has to do partly with the computer programming mm. and, you know, computer programs, it's a lot of ones and, you know, one and zero, it's very binary uh, and a lot of if this, then that. And so I think that from, I like to say that I know what makes sense to me. I'm not quite sure why it, why it makes sense to me in the way that it does, but Sort of in, in my way of thinking is if, if you if you get to 
the fulfillment, the final eschatological fulfillment of creation, and there are some that never attain to union with God, that that would, in my mind, not just be something something that happened, but it would be something that 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 would tell me something about the character of God, that there was actually a little bit of darkness in the character of God. And that would be troubling for me, I, that, that, that first John, that God is, um, is light in whom there is no darkness at all. Mm-hmm. Then for me, I, that, would be an, that would be an interesting moment because if, if we sort of, I'm just sort of imagining a group of, you know, Christian, maybe more convinced universalists like myself and a group of Bardians, and you, so you get to the end of the creation, and it sort of turns out that, well, there are some that didn't, that didn't finally attain union with God for whatever reason. That that's finally, they finally descended into nothingness or something like that happened. And the, I think I would at that point be incredibly unsettled. Yeah. Um, and, a, yeah. and I think a, a Bardian might say, well, um, I'm sure that there are good reasons uh, for all of this that God may not even be able to explain to us. And so uh, I think we can trust that, that uh, God's light is still uh, pure and good, even though uh, these, um, these souls did not ultimately attain to union with God. Yeah. And uh, let me, let me offer the, the academics disclaimer that I, I don't want to make any claims to be, exegeting Bart here or speaking on, on behalf of Bart okay. or to well, represent yeah. my own position as Bart. And I, I have soaked up a lot of Bart, but let me speak only for <laughs> myself here. Um, let me speak only for myself. I think the, um, in my own convictions, that God is a being of light in whom there is no darkness at all is not a contingent matter. So it's not like something could happen that would lead that to not be true. That is true. That's more true than anything that could ever happen in history. That's the truth that defines the meaning of history. So what that means to me is we're not waiting to see, oh, is, you know, we have to wait till create the end of creation to know if God was really good all along, or if there was some darkness in God. No, no, we have this, uh, we have this affirmation. Uh, Everything hinges on this on the fact that God is a being of light in whom there is no darkness at all. That confession can already be made. So I just want to insist on the non-contingency of that affirmation. And, um, and you know, I think you can take that in different ways. Like uh, one thing you could say from that is because that's not contingent and because I'm so confident that um, the that if that is true, then all must be ultimately reconciled. Well, then you can get there, right? But you're getting there from a, a statement about uh, the, your confidence in the goodness of God. Um, I, I think you could also, though, say, I'm going to let God tell me what God's goodness is, right? But again, it's a non-contingent. It's not, well, we'll get to the end of history, and then we'll know if God was really a good guy or a bad guy. Um it's rather that we, we, we trust now in the goodness of God, that God is a being of light in whom there is no darkness at all. Um, let's uh, suppose somebody uh, said that, well, I, I would be a Christian, but the only way that I can be a Christian is if I can believe that 
God will successfully, God is, is that I can have an image of God who will successfully redeem everybody in the end. If, if I can, if, if I can be that way, then I can be Christian. Um, how would you respond to that person? Uh, I mean, I would, in some ways I would respond sort of like we've been having this conversation here. I, um, I, I, like pastorally, I would say, ah, this is a person who lives very much in their head. So we would talk uh, out of our heads for, for a little bit, but I would mm-hmm. also probably um, encourage them to just take up Christian life for a while, um, which means um, engaging in the in liturgy, participating in the sacraments, um, sharing in the mission of the church, the and. Uh, study of scripture and let the just let those things do their work over time and kind of see what happens. If they if this really became an obstacle to them, I would encourage them to go to a, a congregation that affirms that with them and to take up the Christian life there. Um, but I, I, I repeatedly, as a pastor, when people would come to me with these questions of salvation, I would always push back with a, a confidence in the goodness of God. And then that, to me, the fundamental question is: these things are in, if, if these things are in God's hands, I, can you imagine better hands for it to be in? Would you really rather it be in the hands of your own doctrinal confidence? Not me. Uh, I'm just not that smart. I, I'd much rather this be in God's hands. That that's the best place for it to be. And so I would, I can live there. Well, I want to thank you very much for um, uh, taking a good bit of time out of your busy schedule uh, today and helping us to reflect about the current state of theological education. And I think I can, that listeners would be able to tell that anybody that would come to Candler would speak with you would have um, a lot of good opportunity for sincere uh, theological engagement. And so I just want to thank you for that and for the time that you've been willing to uh, spend with us today. Well, and thank you, David. I'm grateful for your interest in the book and for your reaching out to me and and just grateful for this conversation. Um, It's a really rich set of ideas, and it's a pleasure to think them through with you. So thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.